This is Poured Over, a show about stories presented by the booksellers of Barnes & Noble. Jane McGonigal, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. Your new book is called Imaginable, How to See the Future Coming and Feel Ready for Anything, Even Things That Seem Impossible Today. And I have to say the introduction, as far as these things go, is really terrific, but it's welcome to the age of unimaginable events and unthinkable change. And can we take a minute and start there? Because there's mm. so much to cover. Mm, yes. But those are two really big words, unimaginable and unthinkable. Yes. And you know, the inspiration for this book came out of some numbers that I was crunching. During the first year of the pandemic, I started to see trends and patterns in the language that we were using to discuss what was happening. And by the end of 2020, I had calculated that there had been more than two and a half million English language news stories with the word unimaginable in them. And there had been more than three million news stories with the word unthinkable. And the fact that these words were so common in the stories that we were telling, and you know, we all lived through these stories together. It was the pandemic, it was extreme weather, it was climate change, it was new social movements, shocking political events. Now we're living through unthinkable acts of war. Again, it continues. And they really speak to our collective or global condition, right? We're in a state of collective shock. We feel blindsided by reality. But more than that, you know, these words, they speak also to grief and anger, right? We say unimaginable to mean heartbreaking. We say unthinkable to mean unforgivable, unjust, unacceptable. So it's not just collective shock, it's also collective trauma. And in my work as a game designer and a professional futurist, I know that there are ways to feel ready for the types of events that other people would describe as unthinkable or to imagine the types of positive change that other people would dismiss and say, that's unimaginable. And so, you know, that's where we are today. I'm using the book to try to teach what I've learned, both as a professional game designer and a professional futurist and how we can train our imagination so that we can confidently say there is no future that is unthinkable to us. There's no future that is unimaginable to us. And I love the idea of being a futurist, but I have to ask, when does the future start for a futurist? <laughs> you have to ask me. This is one of my favorite questions to ask um, whenever I teach a class or a workshop. I always start by asking people, well, where do you think we're going? We're going to be taking these mental time trips to the future. What are you setting that date? I mean, we've all seen back to the future and you have to like type in the date you want to go to. If I would invite you to go to the future, now how far, how many days or months or years are you going? Everybody has a different answer, but for professional futurists, we usually like to go 10 years into the future for a few reasons. One is that it turns out there's an actual shift in what happens in our brains when we think far out into the future. When we think about the near term, a year, even three years or five years, our brain is really looking for information from the present and the past, trying to think of the patterns it already recognizes and then how to continue those patterns. We get trapped in our assumptions. We get stuck with a kind of normalcy bias. But when you ask someone to imagine 10 years out, it shifts into the default mode, which is a creative mode. It's a mode that kind of shuts out reality and it's where all of our fantastic ideas, our wild ideas, our own kind of sui generis worlds that we can conjure up can come out. And so 
I think this is important, right? When we're trying to use the future, I say like it's a waste of what the future should be used for to just try to predict what we think is likely or possible based on today. What we want to do is use the future as a space to think more creatively and more expansively about what's possible so we can be ready for anything, but also so that we can really vividly envision the kinds of change we want to make and not limit ourselves. And 10 years is enough time to make incredible transformative change. So I give some examples in the book. You know, it took 10 years to go from the first protest against racial segregation to the successful passage of the Civil Rights Act in the United States. 10 years to go from the first country to make it legal for same-sex marriage to occur for a majority of people on the planet to support same-sex marriage and in technology, 10 years to go from the first Facebook user to a billion Facebook users, 10 years to go from the first iPhone to half the planet has an iPhone. So if we want to imagine incredible, wild change, then 10 years is really plenty of time to allow our imagination to kind of go wild. Which brings me to Datter's Law, which Mm. this is the first time I heard this is in your book, and I really quite like it. Any useful statement about the future should at first seem ridiculous. And it's not that we're making light of big social change. We're absolutely not doing that. But you talk about how things that are seemingly very small at first can lead to massive change. And you've just given a number of examples, but can we talk about Datter's Law for a second and who started it and how it became a thing? (laughs) So Datter's Law is named for Jim Datter, who was one of the biggest thinkers in the, the formal field of foresight. He created the first PhD program in the world where you could actually do your whole graduate studies on these, these tools for thinking about the future more creatively and strategically. And so his most famous rule or tool for thinking about the future is, as you said, that the useful ideas will sound ridiculous at first. And what that means is we really need to spend time thinking about exactly those futures that we instinctively dismiss as being so impossible, they would never happen. You know, we don't have to worry about that or seem so wild that we literally can't imagine them because we don't have enough information about what would that be like? How would that work? So our brain sort of, it kind of shuts down. It's just, I can't imagine it. It's unimaginable. But those are the futures we need to prepare for because that's what catches us off guard or that's what can motivate us and drive us to make a better world. And the thing that's important about debtor's law is that at first, you know, qualifier. One of the futures that I spend a lot of time thinking about is how our migration laws might change in the coming decades as we experience more climate change. Are we really going to leave people trapped behind national borders? This was kind of arbitrary constraint that really has only existed for 100 years. Like, I mean, you go back more than 100 years, nobody stopped you from coming in or out of a nation. I mean, you you could get there on the planet. You could go there freely, move. You know, I think we need to consider the ridiculous at first possibility that despite all of the anxiety about immigration and all of the difficulties as we talk about refugee crises, you know, that maybe we'll see it as an opportunity that the more people, the better, the higher density population, more sustainability, more creativity, you know, people can flourish when they get somewhere on the planet where they can make their biggest contribution to society. And But to imagine, well, maybe well, just all the nations where there's less, you know, extreme weather will open up their borders and will let a billion people move. That sounds ridiculous to people because it doesn't seem to follow our current political reality, our current economic assumptions. But I always say at first, there's ridiculous ideas at first, because the more you look and start to pay attention to signals of change, the more you realize, well, what sounds absurd 
actually has a basis in reality. There are things happening today, little experiments, new social movements starting to pop up, weird behaviors we've never seen before. If you start to look for those signals, then you can extrapolate. And you know what we're seeing now at the border between Ukraine and Poland and the incredible welcome that these people fleeing for safety are receiving. People are meeting them, you know, with hot meals and veterinarians are there to take in your pets. And we're seeing more openness in many European countries than we've ever seen before to previous refugee crises. Maybe this is a signal of changing mentality, of accepting our obligation to each other. It's a skill, it's a habit, but it can take us to worlds that other people would say unimaginable, but we can imagine it because we're paying attention to the clues. You know, and you brought up something a minute ago where you said normalcy bias when we were talking about where you could go in sort of this 10-year moment. And part of reading the signals, yes, without a doubt, many, many people have been welcomed in amazing ways. The migration story has changed. The refugee story in this case has changed because a lot of the refugees are white. And I think when we factor in human bias and normalcy bias is absolutely part of that, it becomes a much more complicated kind of moment, but you have a very cool thing that you're talking about in the book where you say, for futurists, the raw material is clues. But the idea that a person, just an average person, can figure out how to read these larger patterns of behavior and of change and maybe feel like they have more of their own moment to participate and not feel like everything's happening around them. And how do I make sense of that? Mm -hmm. Am I interpreting that the right way? I mean, you are. I'm actually getting stuck on the first thing that you said. Of course, one of the likely reasons for the response to this particular refugee crisis is that it's easier for some people to accept migrants who are white and or Christian in countries where they have a primarily white or Christian culture. That can be true and, because we're always, you know, with future thinkings, we're not trying to talk ourselves out of the futures we want, right? And I don't want to talk ourselves out of the possibility that this could set a new mental template. So I have seven-year-old twin daughters, and they may be able to witness this sort of without having to already, even as this good thing is happening and more of what we want is happening, to have to talk ourselves out of it being even possibly a signal of something good. We don't want to dismiss signals that could lead somewhere positive just because there are aspects of it that are, as you said, complex. And so as a futurist, I always try to think, what do I need to do to amplify the clues that are possible pathways to a future that I want? And I don't have to dismiss the possibility yet that people could just see this. And even in seeing it and seeing how heroic it is being hailed as and how good it feels to do it, I don't think we can dismiss the possibility that people who open their borders for one crisis will not now, having done so and seeing potential economic benefits, seeing potential personal meaning and value, that that won't spread. So it's tricky. We can get so angry about what's wrong today that we stop ourselves from trying to find all of the possible pathways 
forward. And so that I just wanted to go back and revisit that since you brought up an important point. One of the reasons why I have a lot of information about climate migration and scenarios about it in the book is because I do think it's going to take us 10 years to get over our anxieties about migrants and refugees. And this is, I think, the biggest thing that we can do individually as humans in the next decade. People are like, oh, sustainability, should I you know, buy an electric car or should I? No. The number one thing we can do in the next decade to make a better world is to be better able to welcome humans who are fleeing or seeking a safer place of opportunity and to get excited about living in more mixed cultures and in higher density. And for a lot of people that is scary and it doesn't sound like a future they want. And I'm trying to tell stories and create images of a world that we do want to wake up in that includes those difficult details. So it's something I value a lot. And we can all tell stories about futures that have our own values and hopes embedded in them. And let's not talk ourselves out of something good happening in the future because we're so frustrated by what has failed in the past. And you have a great line in the book too, our future selves are like strangers to us. I mean, that's part of this 10-year model that you're using is we don't necessarily recognize ourselves that Mm -hmm. far down the road. Like if you were to say, oh, six months from now, a year from now, three years from now, all of that is relatively within reach, but 10 years and our future selves are like strangers to us. I think that's such a great idea because here's what we're talking about in your book is potential. You restated it there. This is potential. This is in some cases, a series of exercise to build some muscles that we may not know we need or didn't know we wanted, but everyone's living in a heightened state of anxiety right now. These are anxious times for a lot of different reasons, for a lot of different people. And here you are saying, hey, wait a minute, there are ways to read a map. There are ways to read these clues that are accessible to you. Some of them are social media. Some of them are the news. You read a lot of very expansive reporting, which I think is terrific. (laughs) I try to subscribe to, even like if I don't quite understand what's being discussed, you know, I have Google Scholar alerts set for different topics. I subscribe to daily headlines from different scientific journals, just at least to kind of keep on my radar. What are the new technologies, the new scientific breakthroughs, the solutions, the policy ideas, incredibly ambitious social movements that are appearing in other countries that I might not experience directly unless I was trying to collect all of these clues on my radar. It's not such a formal process. It's really an Mm -hmm. artistic Mm -hmm. process. So I always say every artistic medium has its raw material. So a sculptor works with clay and a writer works with words and computer programmers work with code and fashion designers work with fabrics and futurists work with these signals of change, these clues. And it's not such a exact science, you know, you're collecting all of these examples of change and change we want and change we don't like. And we're just sort of letting them swirl around in our mind and like mix like the colors of paint on a palette. And we see what worlds they conjure up. But it's your curiosity that's pushing you forward. And I find that completely fascinating because as a bookseller, I spend a lot of time with lots of different voices in lots of different spheres, as it were, because I just like to ask a lot of questions and people humor me and let me ask my questions. But this curiosity and this idea that you can find clues as you sort of walk through the world and process information. And you even talk about the fact that there are two kinds of empathy, which I had never considered this until I read your book. And you said there's hard empathy, and then there's a slightly easier version of empathy. And, you know, there've been a couple of studies done that say reading fiction actually expands human empathy because you are put into a place where you are not necessarily just experiencing someone else's 
life or situation, but in fact, you're just put into the world in a slightly different place. Can we talk about empathy for a second? Because it's a really important piece of what you're doing. And you're also saying, hey, hey, you can't put yourself exactly into someone mm-hmm. else's shoes. Mm-hmm. You can take that and learn from it, but you can't actually be them. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so one of the reasons why I write about empathy in the book is that it turns out that certain types of future imagination actually build the harder forms of empathy, that it's the same underlying neurological pathways that allow us to imagine ourselves in a future world that has never happened. We have no firsthand experience of it. We have to try to use a combination of sort of rational thought and leaps of imagination to figure out what would I do in this future? How would I feel? What would I need? Who would I help? And it's exactly the same neurological pathways as it takes to put ourselves in the perspective of someone else today who's living through a very different reality. We have to use that combination of rational thinking, like, oh man, what's hard about this for them? What would make them feel better? And then our imaginative leap where we essentially try to think and feel in our own bodies how we would respond. And what's interesting about the research literature is it suggests that usually when we try to put ourselves in someone else's shoes, so to speak, we actually make very inaccurate predictions about what they actually feel or what they actually need. We actually build empathy much faster just by asking people to tell their own stories and and answer directly, which is why when I play with future scenarios and invite other people to, I'm like, well, Get a bunch of people together and ask them directly what is exciting to you about this future? What is worrisome to you about it? What would you need? What would you do? We build empathy by actually literally getting that information from others and not having to guess. And then it can also just help us in our everyday lives. We can't always be going up to people and interviewing them about their needs and their stories. So taking these imaginative leaps into future versions of ourselves, it really just builds that same cognitive and emotional capacity to do hard empathy, which is just trying to feel in our minds and bodies what someone else is going through the same way that it's easy for us if we've lived that same experience ourselves. And our brain just says, oh, let me remind you of what it feels like to, you know, have everyone sing happy birthday to you, you know, or let me remind you of what it feels like to be shamed by a stranger on the street. And you can kind of feel that burn, that emotional burn or that spark of joy. Your brain just says, here, I'm reminding you, you get the same chemicals like flooding through your brain and body. But with hard empathy, we got to make it up. And so it's just a little harder work for the brain and future imagination can help. And I know you sign NDAs for a lot of the work you do, but you have done some consulting and advising for companies that are trying to figure out how technology and hard empathy work together for their organizations. So can we take a minute and talk about that? Yes, definitely. So this is, I think, one of the most meaningful things I've been asked to do as a professional futurist is to go inside big technology companies and conduct workshops where they can develop hard empathy for their diverse user base. How might different people be impacted by this technology? And oftentimes in building technology, the development teams or the product teams are not as diverse as their users. And we see that new technologies historically have posed more potential risks to people who have historically suffered more harms, whether it's from inequality, injustice, harassment, privacy loss. So we're talking about women, people of color, the LGBTQ community, people with disabilities, people with chronic illness. And so I work with these groups to stretch their imagination. You know, we can ask groups how they think they might be affected by technologies, but oftentimes it's hard to 
predict. You know, one of the types of technology that I've done a lot of future forecasting around is neurosensing technologies. And it seems impossible. It seems unimaginable. But I trust me, I've seen the prototypes and seen the research data. You know, it is possible that the next Facebook that a billion people are on, not from that company per se, but the next big social network could have automatic sharing of thoughts and feelings using neurosensing or embedded neurosensing devices, wearables or embedded, so that we can have a more authentic sharing, right? So we want to try to understand what might happen if this type of technology is used at scale. And so oftentimes I'll work within an organization or we'll just create a future forecasting game. We asked 10,000 high school students of all walks of life and different communities, gender and ethnicity and every type of teenager we could find. We had 10,000 of them. Just answer the question, well, would you get on a network like this? Like, would you join? Okay, if you join, are you going to let your parents follow you or your friends? You know, who would you block? Who would you want to follow? Whose feelings and thoughts do you want to feel and receive? And how do you think it would affect your relationships, your friendships, dating? How would it affect school? How would it affect politics, activism? And and in playing with these ideas, we can start to get a sense of maybe where benefits from technologies might emerge, but also where potential harms or unintended consequences. And so, you know, it's a combination of bringing enough people to, to the table, right? Have inclusive future forecasting processes. And then just also then getting in there with people who are making stuff, whether it's lawmakers making new policies or curriculum designers creating new curriculum or technology companies making technologies to get that kind of foresight and translate it into insights about how do we want to create this thing so that we can maximize long-term benefit and minimize the unintended harms. Are you starting with systems? Are you starting with people? Or do you just not separate the two in this case? I mean, I always say that I actually work at a much smaller scale than many people. I believe, and my research shows, that we are all experts on our own futures, right? That we can use our lived experiences and our deep intuitions about our needs, our values, our hopes, our fears to make accurate personal predictions. And I mean, this experience is borne out by a couple of future forecasting games that I ran, one in 2008, one in 2010 that were centered around respiratory pandemics that started in China and that were complicated by historic wildfires and social misinformation campaigns on social media and all the stuff we actually lived through. But, you know, I was just asking people in these games more than a decade ago, let's say you were told to isolate or quarantine. Under what circumstances would you refuse and leave anyway and go beyond the people anyway? Like, what can you think of that would make you disobey? <laughs> and the number one thing I heard was religious services. We had about almost 30,000 people across these two games just answer their own personal truth about mm -hmm, these future mm -hmm. scenarios. So number one thing was, yeah, religious worship. We're going to go no matter what. You can't shut that part of my life down. I don't care what the risk is, right? Well, of course, that was true. That did turn out to be the biggest super spreading risk globally. And it wasn't something, you know, that the experts were necessarily ready for, but it emerged from our data before we actually lived through it. We learned that people were going to really resist wearing masks and that even if it seems like such a small thing or seems so rational, we learned about all of the emotional factors and social factors that were going to drive behavior. So I think you can learn about systemic consequences by asking at the very smallest personal level, what would you do? What would you feel? What would you need? But I want to start with where the data is good. And the data is good when people just predict 
what they would feel or need or do. Did anything surprise you as you were writing Imaginable? Yeah. I mean, I'm constantly surprised and I, I have a background as a game designer. What you do when you're a game designer is you always play test your new game ideas and you want to see, do players do what I think they'll do? Is what I think will be fun actually fun to other people? You do the same thing as a futurist. You come up with a futurist scenario and you start sharing with people and asking them to imagine what they would do. And you in your mind have an idea of like, this will be really fun for people to think about. And then when you ask people to think about it, sometimes they just don't get it. It's like, oh, you've been sitting and thinking about blockchain technology and cryptocurrencies for so long. It makes sense to you. But like literally nobody can imagine this because they just don't even understand what you're talking about. So you have to go back and rewrite it. The same way as if you designed a game where nobody understood the rules, you have to rewrite the rules so they know what they're supposed to do. So, I mean, I was constantly surprised as I was playtesting my future scenarios. Whenever I put a future scenario into the world, or in this case, into the book, I look for varied reactions. If everybody thinks it sounds like a good future they want to wake up in, or everybody thinks it sounds like a dystopian nightmare, to me, that's not interesting. We don't learn anything from playing with those futures. We already know how we feel about them. But the ones where it's like half the people are like, yes, this is like, oh, this solves so many problems for me. And the other half are like, I want to pull my hair out and start fighting with you about this. You know, we must never let this happen. But I'm always surprised by which ones shake out that way. There's a scenario in the book that people love that I was like, ah, is this, I don't know, is this too hard to think about or is it intimidating? But there's a, there's a scenario about geoengineering and what it might be like to live through a period of essentially trying to reverse climate change by blocking some of the sun's light so that we cool the planet. And we kind of live through this period of less sunlight, more rains, and people really like imagining this. What is it that is so interesting about this? Like, why are people so happy imagining this future? And it turns out that it was just the idea that we could come together as a planet and take not little tiny steps to try to solve climate change, but that we could do something transformative, not incremental solution, but transformative change. It just like, yes, like, please let me wake up in a world in which we are doing wild and crazy things and not these dumb little ineffective tiny changes. Everything surprises me. I throw out scenarios and I think people will hate it. They love it. I think they'll love it. They hate it. But that's a good thing. It's like having a game design background. I never assume that I know better than the people who are going to have to play with the thing that I create. And so I just have to wait and see if they have fun, if they, if they wind up feeling empowered or, you know, maybe it leaves some coals and only put the stuff that's empowering out there for me. But we have an idea of how wide ranging your reading tastes are when you're working, but who are you as a reader? Who do you like to read? Where do you find your inspiration outside of the material we just spoke about, all of which is very important. Do you ever just get to read for pleasure or are you always just looking for clues? It's a good question. I do. I've gone through like years of my life without reading fiction. It's always a big deal for me when I can go read fiction. I often read the same things over and over again, just to constantly help me find the voice that I want to achieve. So for example, Rebecca Solnit, who is not a futurist, She's such an affirming vision of how we can continue to hope in dark times and how we can remind ourselves of how much has changed in the past so that we don't limit ourselves to what we imagine changing in the future. So, you know, I return to her a lot. I return to Adrienne Marie Brown, who has this beautiful book on emergent strategy and pleasure activism and her sense of how we can bring 
science fiction and imaginary worlds into conversation with the social change we want to create and the political change. I, I guess I'm one of those readers who, the way some people have a Bible by their bedside stand, I have hope in the dark. I have emergent strategy to sit right there in the drawer and pull out <laughs> when I need it. I love that though. I mean, we all find what we need from whatever book it might be. And I just, I love the idea that you've got Rebecca Solnit right there <laughs> with emergent <laughs> strategies. I think she's the bomb. And it's exactly as you described, like she finds hope and inspiration in places. She's got this one piece about this apricot tree that was at her mother's house. And mm. it's an incredible way of writing about grief. Mm. And she ended up with this giant pile of apricots in the middle of her living room or one of the rooms. And she was like, I don't even know what to do with them. But it suddenly takes on all of this weight and you're like, oh, but she's one of the few writers I know who can pull that off entirely. Do you have a favorite moment from the book? My favorite scenario is The Howl, which is an attempt to imagine the future of social protest. It was inspired by something real that I lived through as, as or many future scenarios start with changes happening today. Where I live in the Bay Area of California, every night at 8 p.m. during the first pandemic shutdown, people would open their windows or come out in their lawns or driveways and howl. There are a lot of coyotes. I, I live in like an, in the woods on a mountain. We get a lot of wildlife here and there are a lot of coyotes. And that was just the way that this desire to connect with others when we were isolated manifested in my community. People howled. And there was a lot of conversation at the time, like, what are you howling for? And some people experienced it as joyful connection. And some people were expressing grief and heartbreak. And some people were expressing anger and frustration and what they perceived as the government's failure to act or, you know, communities' failure to protect each other. And all of these different positive and negative emotions and motivations were captured in this howl and people did it every night for a year. I mean, it just kept going and going and going. And in fact, the day that my book comes out this year, it's already been announced we're like our community's doing it, an anniversary howl. So that's very meaningful to me. And I just imagine like, what if in the future we just howled? Like it, that was a new form of protest, a new form of like civil disobedience. We just twice a day, people howl to stop what you're doing and howl and, and express the anger that we haven't taken action on climate change or express our grief, the millions of people living with long COVID, and we have we have not adequately addressed the needs of this community going forward. And what if we were howling? And how would we adapt? And what would it feel like? And how would we choose? I was imagining every place I went, what if I, you know, not that I've been to the theater in a while, but what if, you know, mm. Broadway's reopened and it's like, the howl happens in the middle of a performance. What happens? How does theater adapt to that? People in the audience are just standing up and howling. How do teachers adapt when their students stand up and howl? Or how would we make space for each other? And could it lead to anything? So anyway, that's my favorite scenario. It was just it allowed me to, I guess, hope for a world in which we don't leave this global trauma behind without trying to make meaning out of it and use it as a springboard to make a better world. I don't want us to just go back to normal. I want us to express in this incredibly visceral way, like what we need from each other and from the world that we're not getting. So is that how scenario, is that part of what you're talking about when you're talking about post-traumatic growth? Because that's a phrase I had not heard until I read your book. And mm. I'm wondering how that fits into the bigger picture of what you just said. Sure. I mean, so post-traumatic growth, an increasingly familiar phenomenon where people who experience a trauma, oftentimes, in addition to the suffering, it's not instead of suffering. I mean, it starts with, with suffering, with profound loss or trauma. 
And that in addition to the pain, they will also say, well, I feel like I understand my deepest values better now, or I feel more gratitude and appreciation for certain others now, or I feel a calling. I feel driven to some purpose that I hadn't realized was was in my soul before. Some people say, well, it's kind of like the silver lining of going through an incredible difficulty or loss. It's more about, I think, trying to make sense of something that has happened. We need to transform it into something that we have more agency in, right? Because the trauma is often out of sight of our control. We don't have agency. And so post-traumatic growth is about finding our own agency again. And what will we do going forward that brings more meaning or purpose and gratitude and connection to our lives. And the historical data suggests that pandemics are often a space where people experience both trauma and post-traumatic growth. I don't think we have previously lived through such a universal trauma. I have a hard time putting my finger on a historical event where so many people had their lives disrupted in such a deep, profound way, where so many people are grieving the loss of loved ones, where so many people felt the shock, the foundations of my what I believe is true about the world have been shattered. Maybe this is an opportunity also, not just for trauma at the largest human scale, but also post-traumatic growth at the largest collective scale. And if so, then it's going to be an exciting century because there's going to be a lot of us trying to use this in a way that creates positive change and transformation in ourselves and in society. And so for me, that's a source of hope that even though I experienced loss and grief and suffering during the pandemic, I also am looking forward to allowing that to fuel me to do my part in this, whatever this next great transformation is. Is that the most important takeaway you want for readers of Imaginable, that there is hope, that there are ways to move forward, that we're all just figuring it out? Yes. I mean, I think the biggest takeaway is we should call no future unthinkable and no future unimaginable, right? We have to be willing to think about the hard things and ready ourselves for them. We also have to free ourselves from the limitations of the present so that we can find refuge in the futures that we want, right? Especially now more than ever, the future is a space where we can go. We can use our mental time travel skills to vividly experience and pre-feel the worlds that we want to then roll up our sleeves and help make. And so this is a moment of unprecedented disruption and possibility and opportunity, and we should take advantage of it. And we should look for actively look for the futures that we want and look for the clues and signals of change that make us think those futures are possible and collect them and cherish them, like hold tightly onto them as we try to make the signals of change that give us hope to amplify them and share them with each other. I'm so glad you brought up mental time travel because you do have a section in the book where you say, hey, let's learn to time travel. Let's learn to connect the emotions with the intellectual exercise of time travel. And I think that's really important. And again, I love the way you phrase it there, mental time travel. And is that where all of this starts, that we just learn to sort of, as you say, suspend disbelief and just let our imaginations go? Is that the literal starting point for anyone who wants to sit down and think, huh, maybe I can do this. Maybe I can try this. Maybe I can do something new. <laughs> absolutely. It is absolutely the starting point. Before you go visit you know, worlds in which we're solving climate change or we've fixed economic inequality and all the hard stuff, you can also just 
go on these simple mental time trips to your own future 10 years from today. It's one of the first imagination challenges in the book. Imagine yourself waking up 10 years from today and just vividly envision it. Where are you waking up? Do you want to wake up somewhere different than you woke up today in the year 2020? Where would you wake up? What time of day or night are you waking up? Who's with you? Is it somebody different than who might be with you in 2022? And, you know, what wakes you up? Is it alarm, a phone call, the sound of some, you know, nature outside? What's on your to-do list for today? Like, can you imagine that there's something exciting on your to-do list that would make you just like leap out of bed? So we can use these mental time trips to explore really our deepest values and goals. One thing we know, again, from the research literature is that when people imagine themselves 10 years out, the types of things they imagine themselves doing tend to be very closely linked to their deepest values. What what drives them forward in life, even in the face of difficulties or uncertainties, that because you know there's no to-do list, nobody's got our little agenda for 10 years from today written, it's still a blank slate. So we can fill it with what we want to fill it with. And I've, I mean, I hear from people that even just that simple of an exercise, you know, what are you doing 10 years from today? It's really a good personal exploration. And then I say, you know, well, just do yourself a favor and go put something on your, you use Google Calendar, go open up Google Calendar. You can go 10 years in the future. You can go hundred years in the future. Go in and put something on the calendar for 10 years from today that you think would represents the world you want to wake up in or the life you want to wake up in. And then like, let's see. And by the way, I have scheduled the official book club meeting for Imaginable is 10 years in the future. It's for September 2032, because I want people to come back and tell me about all the amazing things that they did this decade. And how did we live up to our imagination? And what did we see coming? And what were we surprised by, but we still felt, you know, ready for. So yeah, the book club's 10 years in the future, and you can put something on your own calendar for 10 years from today that represents the life that you hope to be living by then. It seems like a really great place to start, but is there anything we missed that you wanted to talk about from Imaginable? I do want readers of the book to know that these games work better when you play them with others. And so like any good online game developer, I've created an online space where people can come. So if you want to talk about these scenarios with other people, see the features from their point of view and build your heart empathy. There's an online community. It's called Urgent Optimists and the URL is on the book jacket. I don't want people to feel like stuck in their own imagination. If you need other people's ideas or you just want to hear what are other people imagining that drives them forward, you can come and play these games. And we just opened the doors to this community. And in the last 24 hours, I've had 500 people from 56 countries tell me what future they are hopeful for. And so I'm learning a lot and I want to invite people to not just read, but play the games with other people. If you're hungry, you can't just look at a plate of food. You have to eat the food. And so, you know, this is a book of games and I don't want people to just read it. I want them to come and play them. And anything that builds community Mm -hmm. is a good thing. So I think we should all just try it out. Jane McGonigal, thank you so much for joining us on Poured Over. The new book is Imaginable and it is out now. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.